Greetings and welcome to episode 36 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the latest game in the franchise, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and joining us in the orange sidewinder this episode, we have head of station entertainments, Mr. Christopher Jarvis. Good evening. Lave Station's chief bar steward, Mr. Grant Wolcott. Hello. Lave Radio newcomer and head of health and safety, Mr. Ben Moss Woodward. Greetings, commanders. And finally, the newest member of the team and head of Station Archives, Mr. Colin Ford. Good evening. Welcome to the show, guys. So on this episode, we're going to look into the information that came out of the newsletters 38 and 39. Our discussion topics are going to focus on what we can expect from the Beta 2 release and what the current timeframes are looking like. We're going to talk about the upcoming 30th anniversary celebrations for Elite. In Community Corner, we're going to discuss some hot topics from the forums and the end of the writer's Kickstarter. And finally, we're going to wrap up with some listener feedback and some shout-outs. However, before we get stuck into that, let's find out what everyone has been up to in and out of the Elite Universe, starting with you, Mr. Jarvis. Yeah, audiobook stuff, continuing. Um, and I'm not sure if I've said this on the last one, but it's, it's been a few weeks of it. I've had lots of actors coming in and recording various parts for the Lave Revolution audio drama. So we've been kind of back into recording mode again in the last couple of weeks, which has been nice. It's been nice to have some people for company, if, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can appreciate that. But I've literally around about sort of 85, because I've just obviously been in, on holiday in the south of France, and I did take Lave Revolution with me, and I'm about 85% of the way through. And now I kind of understand a little bit of your anguish when you said you were trying to cast this because the amount of characters in that story is ridiculous yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal so how many people have been coming to visit the studio I've actually lost track a little bit I think <laughs> I think by the time we've finished the audio drama and you know this is including the stuff we did with, with Penny and Toby and Scott I think we'd have had about 15 people involved Grand. in the recording. I think. That's off the top of my head. I don't know. And obviously the people like Penny and the other sort of professional actors, I dare say they've got quite a few characters in them. To be honest, everyone's got quite a few characters in it. <laughs> um, there hasn't really been much of the luxury of being able to just cast a person as a part. No, I mean, I think it's a challenging book and it's a challenging story to, you know, to have to kind of tell in that way because deliberately it's written to be this kind of big historical event where lots of people contribute small amounts to a yeah. big thing that's happening. It does just make casting quite a challenge. Um, and yeah, so that's that. I was going to say, what about within the Elite Universe? Have you had any time to play? See, I thought that was in the Elite Universe. I was racking my brains to think of anything that's happened outside of that. I did have a bit of a play. I'd been playing it and I realised I had a sort of familiarity thing. I was refusing to leave the systems from the previous version of the beta. Uh, and I thought, no, 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 I need to actually go and explore some other places. So I did have a bit of a fly all the way over to somewhere whose name I've forgotten. Um, it's a station with a Chinese name I can't think I think I said this on the other podcast actually Um, but yeah so but in other news my daughter is one on Saturday oh you're kidding me I know Eden is one I know how'd that happen and so yeah we've got um, party and stuff on Saturday so that'd be nice that's amazing it's scary how fast the time goes though isn't it 
It is considering that uh, it doesn't seem like two seconds ago we were actually congratulating you on the show about the you know the birth of your first child Eden and and now suddenly an entire year has gone past. I mean, you're right. Where did that time go? Yeah, quite. I think I spent most of it here in the studio. <laughs> oh dear, that is definitely true. Well, Mister Wilcott, what about you? What have you been up to in and out of the game? Well, it's the usual trying to buy a house, still trying to buy this house, sort of getting ever closer um we only meant to have moved in what a week ago <laughs> so it's um progressing just little sort of details of back and forth to go and then we should be able to get the keys asap so i'll be hopefully being speaking to you from my nice new study that should have me sounding a bit more like this because of the massive Leave your new sound desk alone. That's your first warning. <laughs> and also, um, we got Docker's episode four out. My grand's been taken ill, so I've been doing some hospital running back and forth. So yeah, it's been a fair old busy week. And is your, I mean, is your grand okay? Yeah, she's doing okay. She seems to be doing okay. Um, I'll find out later on once my sister's been in to see her tonight, and then I'll go in and see her tomorrow night. Hopefully, she'll continue to improve. Well, all the best to Granny Wolcott then, and hope that she makes a speedy recovery. She'll appreciate that. She's a big listener. I bet she is. <laughs> um, okay, Mr. Woodward, what are you up to? I've been a much quieter couple of weeks than these guys, I'm afraid. On the bright side, I've been making Viper sandwiches with Commander Dementia as the meat between Commander Smokey and my anacondas. And for those people that don't listen to Dockers... That wasn't Docker's chat. That was that was real. <laughs> um, I, no, the other night I was on the Lave Radio um, TeamSpeak server, and we were basically testing cannons. And some of the guys were saying, "With my cannon, I'm one-shotting anacondas." And I basically turned around and says, "No, you're not." And we had some fun outside of Freeport in a private group, doing some stuff there, and that was all fine and dandy. But then we just also just were mucking around a bit and. Commander Dementia decided he was going to land his Viper on top of my Anaconda. And then Smokey decided he was going to land his Anaconda on top of Dementia's Viper. Okay, I can see where this is going. Yeah. So, I think it's one of those situations, though, Ben, unless you've got a screenshot, it obviously didn't happen. We have a screenshot. In fact, we actually have a video. <laughs> yeah, by the sounds of it, it sounds more like it's going to be an X-rated video. But... <laughs> was there any sort of truth in the fact that he was actually one-shotting Anacondas with his cannon? No. What sort of damage was he doing? What was his uh, What was his loadout? Uh, he had a four cannon loadout, and with the four cannon loadout and the Viper, he's a very easily able to take out NPC anacondas. But right. taking out player characters is another story. I wonder if there's going to be any sort of change in the AI between now and the main game. Well, we know uh, there we'll are. Sort of address that. We know there are increasingly more difficult AIs that they're working on. So. And I believe they've said that some of them will be taking use of the lateral thrusters and stuff like that. So hopefully. Mm, interesting. Mr. Ford, welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, mate. Welcome aboard. What have you been up to in and out of game this week? Well, mostly in-game. I've been uh, recording my usual top shift. I've got to be very careful saying that. Top shift video podcast, which I put up on YouTube every week. Uh, at the moment, I'm flying about in a Type 6, exploring various systems and finding out how bad a pilot I actually am. 
<laughs> so when you say exploring, are you looking at some of the sort of non-scripted events that are going on or are you trying to get yourself in sort of dogfights or are you literally just sort of flying around planets and taking photos? Basically, I'm flying around planets and taking photos and, and finding some, some pretty views to look at. Uh, one of the things that I did notice is that a couple of the other commanders have, have decided to, just for a comparison, they're all flying out to about one astronomical unit, which is 499 point something light seconds, and turning around and taking a picture of the sun. That's the same distance. So you can then go around each of the systems and you will see the comparison of all the star sizes. Nice. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. On top, I think that's Ian M. Norman who's planning to do that. Apart from that, I've just finished the second audio chapter of my uh, sanctimonious story. That will be coming on to um, SoundCloud quite soon. It was supposed to be for the Elite Chronicles project, which seems to have disappeared. For me, I've obviously missed the last show because I was sunning myself in the south of France. Uh, I took the family Euro camping just outside Nice, uh, where there was absolutely no Wi-Fi signal. And even in McDonald's, the fastest internet you could get was sort of like half a meg. So uh, it was quite interesting to be completely out of the loop on everything. The, the best signal I could actually get was on my 3 mobile I have to say, not to, to plug 3 Mobile, but they've just set up this scheme which is basically feel at home. So all of your allowances and all of your data and everything else is free to use as long as you're in one of their countries. So France was one of their countries that was part of the scheme. So it cost me nothing else, uh, nothing extra to surf the net on my phone just using the data allowance, which was quite cool. In fairness to the French internet, I mean, have you seen their porn? <laughs> I mean, really, this this is why this is why perhaps they haven't prioritised faster speeds because it's <laughs> just terrible. Um, in game, before I left, I'd managed to work my way up to a, a Cobra Mark III, and I was still doing some trading runs, sitting on around about one hundred and fifty thousand. So I'm a little bit behind the rest of you guys flying around in Lacons and stuff. Okay, so this week in the development news, we've got a couple of newsletters to go through. Newsletter 38 and 39, starting off with 38. And let's go for the top of the letter and the peak of the week, the ship weathering. And this is something that you know, has been around since the, the very sort of early stages of the Elite Kickstarter campaign. And it was actually one of the things that I thought was quite a cool sort of innovation that over a period of time, depending on how many sort of fights you get into and, and what you use the ship for, your ship will actually become a little bit more beaten up and a little bit more sort of, <laughs> a little bit more worn as it gets older. The problem we've got at the moment, of course, is the fact that you can't actually see your ship, apart from when you're docking and when you're actually putting weapons and stuff on. The whole weathering effect, I know, it's kind of lost until we can either sort of get out or walk around them or, or maybe even just have an external camera. What do you guys think, Ben? I completely agree. I think the whole idea of the flags and skins and things like that, until I can see my ship, why would I want it? But regarding the weathering, I think the weathering is a beautiful thing, but I want to also make sure I can get out and knock out the dents, give it a retouch and things like that too. <laughs> the John Stabler approach to, uh, to ship maintenance. Oh yeah, with, uh... you, want, you want to make it look all right as well sometimes. Yeah, and I'm sure there's probably another way of, you know, maybe giving your ship a service like you used to be able to do in Frontier and stuff. Maybe maybe that would knock out some of the dents and maybe give yourself a little bit of a spruce up. What do you reckon? I think that's probably almost exactly what they're going to have and resprays and things like that too. But, I mean, doesn't that sort of take some of the joy out of it? I mean, is there not a certain amount of pride to have in having the most sort of beaten up jalopy that you can possibly fly out of the station without it falling apart? Colin? 
I was going to say that the, I was fully expecting that one of the things that we expect to be put in is the fact that as your ship gets more and more beaten up, you're going to have to spend more and more credits just to keep it going. Until <laughs> finally, <laughs> your your trusty autocannons just give up the ghost, and that means you have to buy new ones. Yeah, it'd be an interesting encounter where you actually look out at the left side of your ship and notice that your cannon has actually just come off the ship and is now floating away into space. Oh, there's so many innuendos you could attach to that. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's done well. And you know, looking at the pictures in the peak of the week, it is, you know, it does look like it's something that they're modelling really, really nicely. I think it would be an interesting thing. It would just add to the whole sort of uh, level of immersion and realism uh, within the galaxy. But again, the sort of thing where even if it's just something simple like having like a 3D flyby camera view, uh, of your ship as you come into the space station or something like that just so you can actually see what sort of yeah, what the exterior of your ship looks like yeah that would make this thing yeah, just so much better okay uh the next one that came out was another starport yeah in the newsletters a couple of weeks ago we found out about the fact that there's going to be little sort of docking stations and cafes and and depots and stuff in space this is the third actual proper space station model that we've seen out in the wild so obviously we've already had the coriolis and we've had the Orbis, and this one is the one that fits in between. So obviously you've got the outposts, which are the smallest dockable structures you've got in space, and you've got obviously the Coriolis, and this one, which is the Ocellus, and then the Orbis. When I first saw this, I don't know why, maybe it's just me, but my first impression was that those, you know, the sort of Nerf balls that you can get, that you can throw in the garden and stuff, to make a sort of whizzing noise. It just looked like one of those. I know someone's obviously spent hours and hours designing this thing, but that was the first thing that sort of uh, jumped out at me when I saw this picture. But I mean, it's, it's nice. I mean, we, we will talk about it in more depth in terms of what's coming in beta 2, but I think, I can hope that this is something that we're going to see in the next round of beta. What do you reckon, Ben? I hope this is something we're going to see in the next round of beta. The more variety, the better. Um, I love these stations, though, because they're based off of the Bernal Sphere stations. Do you want to give us a bit of history about those? I don't really know a lot about them, just what they said in the newsletter, I'm afraid. <laughs> the Bernal Sphere stations, which were invented by the Space Habitat by scientist John Bernal in 1929. But what I love about these is they've got great big freaking engines, and they can fly. <laughs> You know, it's got a, it's a giant world ship, basically. It's massive. And it can fly and it can, like, jump from one place to another. Yeah, that is pretty cool. So the idea is that, obviously, when a system becomes wealthy enough or of enough note, then you basically, you'd fly in one of these Ocellus starports as basically your first sort of support unit, which, yeah, is, is a nice touch. But it'll be interesting. Obviously, when we're talking about these the starports, the nice thing about them is the fact that they're they're basically modular. So they can basically tag things on to make different styles and different shapes of starports to add more variety within the universe. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of modules will actually get attached to this one. Obviously, the the whole sphere will have to stay pretty similar, but it'll be interesting if you can get more discs on them or more wheels and just sort of extend them backwards and change the overall shape of them. No, I think we're already seeing the modularity just in this photograph that we got in newsletter 38, because the ball is what I'd say is, is the Ocellus part, but then we've got the habitat rings and the cooling vents, and it looks like some, I don't know if that's cargo stuff as well, which is what we're already seeing on the Orbis stations. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what level of system you'll actually need to have in order to have an Ocellus, whether or not you know the likes of Freeport will have one, or whether or not they'll just stick to the old dark and dingy Coriolis. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd love the idea of, you know, you've got the dark and dingy Freeport, 
and let's say the feds go and fly in one of these to bring law to the frontier. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great storyline ideas. Okay, so I mean, we'll probably see a little bit more about that and talk a little bit more about that after Beta Two comes out. Jarvis, has any of these come up in the fiction that you've come across? No, I mean, certainly the you know the detail wasn't there really for the writers when they were at the stage of sort of plotting their stuff. I mean, there are different types of stations that are alluded to sort of in the spirit of things so, you know there are smaller ones that are just refueling points there are ones that are built into the insides of giant asteroids like we saw in some of the early concept art so there's definitely space station concepts that have made their way through to the fiction okay and yeah, moving on to the next section of the newsletter missions now we're not going to go into this in too much depth because it's something that we're actually going to talk a little bit more about in our discussion topic for this episode uh, but suffice to say that they're actually increasing the number of missions and the type of missions that we're going to see in the next round of beta in terms of elite fiction newsletter 38 actually covers the elite dangerous book elite reclamation by drew wager now i've literally as i say just getting to the end of labor revolution any of you guys read reclamation i have thoroughly enjoyed it it was one of these space romps and there were some major plot twists in there that i didn't see coming so hats off to drew for that because uh, it, it was a very well told story quality i know that drew and alan have just been uh, i think they just recently met up in london to actually do some some signed copies to go back to fantastic books publishing which i'm sure uh, are probably going to be available in the Fantastic Books store. So if you haven't got a copy of the book and you'd like it, then obviously head across to Fantastic Books Publishing and you can grab it from there. Mostly harmless questions this week. Who's going to do these? Uh, Grant, why don't you start us off with Matt Johnson? Certainly can. Matt Johnson is asking, how long does it take to create a ship for Elite from the drawing board to finally seeing it in-game? many weeks apparently the first concept is drawn and then it's adjusted until it looks right then a block out is created and details like the internal size layout engine locations cockpit visibility are considered and the exterior of the ship including paint jobs and even how it will weather over time as we've seen up in the earlier one and then it's modeled and all the different moving parts are fitted, hard points, undercarriage, cooling vents, thrusters, cockpit scoops. That sounds pretty much like what you would expect from a car manufacturer. Yeah, it does make you wonder what sort of level of detail these guys really go into and you know how much of that we'll actually see when it comes to, I don't know, either walking around in ships or even just walking around in stations to see these ships up close. I suppose it's actually it's a sound way of doing this because you are putting all the effort in first. Yeah. To, to make sure that any additional things you want to add later will fit in seamlessly and be easy. If you consider all the possibilities, put in all the detail, then suddenly there's no need to sort of hammer it in later on. Yeah, absolutely retrofit to uh, to make it work. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, one of the things that we still haven't seen, but you know, we know is coming that we saw in the early stages of development was the whole sort of being able to shoot open the, the side of ships and see the interiors. And if you shoot open the cargo bay, the cargo stuff coming out. So, you know, for that to work, I'm assuming that that's why you need to go into this sort of intense level of modeling. But when that all comes through, it's going to be fantastic to see these ships blow apart. Okay, uh, Colin, why don't you take us on to the next question, mate? Well, this is from Commander oh, Hydrino. How will Frontier force the PG universe to change over time? Will these methods include some form of player-caused change-slash-damage persistence? 
For instance, if a small mining colony is destroyed, how can that persist and be repaired over time if PG always creates the objects exactly the same for all players? Now, PG is procedural generation. Procedural generation is only a tool that they use. The players are constantly going to be affecting the base system by uh, leaving cargo and, and wreckage around, and uh, the systems that they're built in will have to take that into an account. And you're going to have points where you're going to have, we've already had it where there's been too much cargo left about and it caused problems within the system. And the other things that have been happening, you could have a, a mining rig that you've left somewhere and some pirates have come along and destroyed it. That's going to be saved as destroyed on their servers. So it's always going to be persistent. It's not going to be one of these things that you come back to in solo mode and it's still there. It's It's the stream across the board great so basically you know the game's going to evolve with a cloud-based narrative so each and every player's actions impact to the overall evolving storyline is what they said yeah cool and that was just about it for newsletter 38 although i will point out that obviously david's been doing the rounds at insomnia in coventry which i was trying to get to but didn't quite manage uh, and also that the the usb keys that they left in cologne were found by people as well, and these were USB keys that actually gave the finders access to the game, access to the uh, to the beta, and supposedly they were found very, very quickly. The other thing that's dear to our hearts, because we've all had a drink of it, Rory Scarlet actually made some decent homebrew and got creative with the labels and created the Aspect Explorer, which you might have heard about on the show. And he sent in a, I think, a case of it to Frontier Developments, which sounds like a really bad idea for the rest of us who want this game to be developed as quickly and as accurately as possible. There's some pictures in the newsletter of some of the developers really sort of, really sort of enjoying the ale. And not to be stereotypical here, but the picture that they posted of the guys drinking the ale, don't they look like typical ale drinkers? I still haven't opened my uh, Aspect Explorer, so I can't actually say if it's uh, if it's a nice drop or not. I enjoyed mine very much. What is it? Is it like a heavy ale or is it a lager or? It's kind of like a, it's a surprisingly fizzy ale. Oh, okay. So it's I mean, maybe there's, maybe I just shaken my bottle a bit, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. It was a sort of it was sort of lightish. I mean, it was lightish without being lacking in flavour. I think that was the thing. It had a nice flavour to it, but it wasn't like really heavy, and it had quite a lot of sort of nice sparkle to it. It was nice. Cool. Okay. Uh, all I know is that I had mine in the fridge until <laughs> I got numerous bits of abuse thrown at me by Mr. Scarlet himself saying that it wasn't supposed to be cold and it needs to be drank at room temperature. So that, again, sounds like an ale stereotype to me. But never mind. Let's just leave it there and move on to newsletter 39. Second Technician Forrester, please report to the LaveSec Academy. Second Technician Forrester to the Lave Security Academy. The vending machine is broken. The vending machine is broken. of his arms in an airlock accident. Everybody, again, 50 more. What was that, you grubs? Are we not having a good time? Jones, are you about to be sick on me, boy? Okay, grub will slam that visor down. Perhaps that'll motivate you to hold on to whatever garbage you put down your neck this morning. Private, let me ask you a question. Why do we call you noobs grubs? Sir, 
Grubs! Private, what's so special about our grubs? Sir, they're extinct, sir. Bullseye, recruit! They're extinct, which is what I expect you all to be if you can't even pass through your basic training. Now push! Come on! Are you a Thargoid or a Trumbull? <coughs> what is it, Grub? Sorry, sir. I'm not a Grub, sir. I mean, a recruit. I'm a technician here to fix the vending machine, sir. Well, hell, son, I put that request in two days ago. What kind of slack, namby pamby time wasting foot dragging oxygen draining department are you civilians running over there? I tell you, boy, when they abolished slavery, not only did we lose the best damn cannon fodder in the system, but our logistics took a turn for the lackadaisical. I got worthless grubs here whose ability to inflict damage on sentient beings increases from non-existent to mostly harmless based on the number of stem bars they get out of that vending unit and stuff into their worthless pie holes. Your sorry excuse for a response time has been messing with my finely tuned death machine. What do you have to say for yourself? Uh... Well, don't just stand there, technician. The vending machine is beyond the laser rifle range in the automated defenses bay. Move it! Move it! Okay, boys, that's enough. Grab your rifles. Looks like we got ourselves a live fire volunteer. Okay, and in newsletter 39, starting us off with the uh, peak of the week, this time entitled A Port in a Storm. Now, what do you guys think of this? It obviously is one of the outposts that we've heard about in the last few newsletters. What surprised me was actually just the sheer scale of it. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you have actually sort of clicked on and expanded it, but there's a couple of little ships floating out to space that give you some idea of scale. And if they're to be believed, I mean, certainly one of them looks like to be either a Panther Clipper or a Lake on 6 or a Lake on 9. But this actual port, which obviously looks like a refining centre or something, looks massive. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's still pretty big. I mean, it's not on the scale of the big Coriolis stations, but it's still got to be big enough to support a sort of space-bound community. I don't think there was ever an idea that it was going to be the equivalent of a sort of porter cabin with a landing strip on the side. Some of the pictures we got were sort of like Dale Boy's Diner, where you had like maybe six docking ports and a building. This is something on a much bigger scale than that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's obviously no gravity here, which is another another factor. And it's probably been bolted together out of sort of standard space-borne components rather than something like a Coriolis, which is obviously a huge engineering undertaking. This looks like something which has sort of grown over time and has had various functional bits tacked onto it as the sort of need has arisen. There's just something in that picture. I mean, it's a stunning picture. It looks like it's been generated from the in-game engine. And that's why I've just noticed something that is exciting. If you remember way back when they were doing the sort of planet development, they were talking about how you'd be able to tell what kind of planet it is by the arrangement of the cityscapes. But we haven't really seen that in-game yet. If you look to the bottom right of the planet, you can see city lights. Oh, That's a good point, a... actually. I hadn't seen that. I thought that was dust on my monitor. <laughs> Keep your monitor a wipe and have another look, mate. <laughs> <laughs> The clouds have improved as well, haven't they? Quite possibly, but I mean, this could also be a screenshot taken with the new uh, super high definition a rig that they're talking about as well later on in the newsletter. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's just another thing where when we actually get to, to sort of getting out of our ships and walking around stations, it would be fantastic 
if we could actually walk around yeah one of these and have to meet someone on this sort of an outpost to collect missions and stuff like that i think it would just really add to the narrative of the universe uh, it looks stunning and to, to sort of fly around that in game is a wonderful prospect just you know to think about being miles away from the core and stumbling across that and going oh excellent i can go and offload all this crap i've been carrying around me for the last six jumps it does actually remind me a bit of the design of things like red dwarf is it's very sort of industrial and bold it doesn't look as if you can dock there but it certainly looks as if it's somewhere you could refuel from yeah, absolutely. And there's, there seems to be a few pads kicking around the sort of the exterior of it. But again, if you have a look at the size of the ship that's just sort of floating off in the top right-hand corner, you know, there should be quite a few places for you to be able to set down. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Ben's just mentioned that obviously there's no gravity and stuff, so there could be all sorts of stuff on the underside of that that you can't see because of the lighting. Either way, it's a fantastic image and you know, something that really opens up the universe and it should be something that would be quite quite interesting to see whether or not that's going to come in beta 2 or whether or not it's going to come further down the line we don't know but obviously the sooner the better because at the moment we've still only got the one port in the system set up and it'll be quite interesting to see when you can actually go to multiple space stations or multiple ports within each system just to see the variety of them all Okay, so the main part of Newsletter 39 is that of exploration now I know Ben you've made quite a few notes on this why don't you take us through it yeah, I think the exploration, I think, is looking incredibly exciting, especially for the people who are doing the first great expedition. Their trip off to the centre of the galaxy, I think, is where they're heading off to. But I love the depth that they're going into, the fact that it takes multiple scans to do a system. You can push out with your, say, your, your Laken Type 6s and just, like, jump, scan, jump, scan. But you're not really scanning, you're just saying, yeah, we've got a system here. And then you'd go off and throw in the maybe the heavier duty ships to actually do big scans where you're doing an active scan of the system, but while you're scanning it, you'll lit up like a Christmas tree. And then you've got the race back to the core worlds with that data to sell it on. But then you can only sell it to one faction. So the feds, you can sell it off to the feds or the Imperials, and if they catch you double dealing, then... They might get their face on with you. There's something that troubles me about the whole kind of exploration side of things is this. And I know <laughs> going back many, many episodes, I think actually this is something that I already said a long time ago I was concerned would be a factor. And I think the hope was that as the game came more uh, into, into reality that these things would be dealt with. But the thing that bothers me about it is there's a suggestion from the description that you'll go to a system and you will chart it and you will create maps. And then there's another player there who's also charted it. And there's a race to get that information back. Now, what that implies to me is that once the system is mapped by a player, then it's done. And this is something that really puts me off about multiplayer. This is actually, I mean, ignoring you know all the conversations we've had time and time again about the whole player versus player thing. For me, this is the multiplayer killer. If there is a possibility that I'm going to come into a game and my game world is gradually being completed and filled in by all the other gamers out there, then that's something that takes away from my game. I'm an enormously selfish gamer. I go into games because I want to experience the content that's in them. And to give an example of another game, I used to play Borderlands. And one of the reasons I stopped playing it online is you open up your single-player game to visitors. And what happens is all these high-level players jump into your game 
and rush around completing all your quest markers. And after about 30 seconds, I just kicked all the players and went back to playing single player because I was in there because I wanted to do everything kind of myself. So I've got to worry that as we get into Elite Dangerous, all the systems that are kind of within convenient travel from the sort of inhabited worlds are very quickly going to get mapped by everybody else who's got more time to play the game than you. And when you actually get the chance to go out and do some exploring you're going to have to push that much further away clearly there are going to be they're almost always going to be uncharted parts of the galaxy but that border of how far you have to go to find something unique that no other player who's playing elite dangerous has found before is going to get bigger and bigger and for me that's that's a killer that would that would either stop me being an explorer or stop me playing the game multiplayer that's a very good point. And I was chatting to some guys in the Lay Radio Skype chat channel and on the TeamSpeak server. They were discussing if you were to try and traverse the full system, spending five minutes in each system, how long would it take to visit every system in the game? And I think it was about 45,000 years. Something ridiculous. That's edge to edge of the disc. If we're talking about the inhabited worlds that are already mapped, and they have, to be fair, said there will be odd little things in the already inhabited worlds that maybe haven't been discovered. But essentially, you're talking about a border growing outwards from the systems that are known. And so it's not a case of how long it takes to map the whole galaxy. It's how long it takes to map what is going to be the realistic playing area. Yeah, I totally totally agree with your point because it's going to be to that point where it would take you a concerted effort to get out far enough to discover something new that hadn't been discovered, which would basically be a nail in the coffin of the explorer. Do we know if this data that the guys get is going to get automatically pushed out to us or are we going to have to purchase these map updates ourselves? Well, that's the key factor. Like I say, I am sort of jumping to conclusions a bit from what they've written in this newsletter. But the implication in the newsletter is two players racing to get their information back first, which implies to me that the information the two players have is somehow the same and central. Isn't that emergent gameplay, though, as opposed to game-breaking? If you don't buy the data, then it doesn't matter if you've had these two guys doing their race. You just don't buy the data. Yeah, no, no, my point is that as an explorer, if everybody who wants to be an explorer can explore the same system, then you can't have a player versus player competition to get that information back because you'll both get paid for that job. If only one of you is going to get paid for that job, then that implies that exploration is something that can only happen once in the lifetime of Elite Dangerous. Yeah, and I think that is definitely currently what it looks like. Um, Although you've got to remember that all this data can be sold both to the Imperials and to the Federation. So, yeah, it's a massive galaxy, but that data could potentially at least be doubled in terms of, you know, person gets it, brings it back. You can go out there, get it. It's already been scanned for the Federation, but you can come back and sell it to the Imperials. But I do take your point about the fact that as time goes by, if you're a newbie in six months' time, the border to go out and actually do some scanning is going to be vast and the amount of time it's going to take you in-game to get out there to do your scanning is going to be you know, considerably different to the people that have been playing from Gamma. Um, so yeah, that is possibly something they need to actually 
to think about. But, you know, is that not true in terms of, I know you don't want it to be completely like real life, but would you not say that was realistic to what uh, what we can expect in real life? You know, the border is going to get bigger. I'm not interested in realism. You know, the Earth is already a place where there is so little left to kind of explore. I know that's not true and there are actually loads of places to explore, but in terms mm. of kind of discovery and discovering new places, there are no new places. And that's why in, in a world of six billion people, there are only like three guys who are explorers. It might be realistic, but it's not fun entertainment. And that's really what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep our eye on it. Grant, what's your thought? Well, I was, as Ben was saying there as well, not everybody's going to have updated maps. They're going to have to buy these updates to find these systems. So if you wanted to play in the sort of Jarvis hermit mode where you just ignore these things, you could go and explore these things for yourself. Equally, it's changing data, isn't it? The, you know, these systems can change. There could be a, a station there, so there could be a hunger for updated information too. They could expire these things and they could be out of date. And when you travel using these old maps, because I think the the key thing is how are you going to find that system in the first place if it's not on your star map? Yeah, you've got to think, though, uh, what you're saying about just not buying the information means you can explore. You know, you're not going to get paid for that. You know, just because you haven't bought the maps doesn't mean to say that it hasn't already been explored. I think the fact that it's been explored is a is a permanent thing. It's not procedurally generated. So that will stay on the servers that that area has actually been explored whether you've bought the, the information or not. Well, there is one other thing to consider, and that's that the actual frontier has got a limit on it. You're only going to be able to get so far out into the galaxy before you need support. I mean, that's one of the whole points of the, the Great Expedition, is that uh, there are the guys who are, are going helpful either for the centre of the galaxy, I think it is, but we've already been told that they'll need support craft, people bringing fuel out to them or parts out to them. So until you get to a point where, if you like, another ring of space stations have been created for people to then jump off and go exploring from there, it, the, the frontier is going to sort of expand to a certain point, then stay static, and then there'll be another big round of expansion. So um, it's kind of self-limiting in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe just another couple of points about exploration that we haven't quite covered, and that's the different value of the various things. So it doesn't matter what your ship you're in. That was one of the things I think you were saying, Ben, about the fact that you know you take a, a big ship out there, a big lake on, and do the whole uh, system. You can actually, they said in the newsletter, you can actually do the active scanning in something the size of a Sidewinder. The Sidewinders has enough power to do all the active scanning that you're going to need to do, but maybe it would just take a little bit longer than if you were in a bigger ship or if you had better skills. So there's that, and there's also the fact that you are looking for planets with uh, indigenous life as well, and they're worth more than just a, a rocky moon, for example. I think that's quite quite interesting. They have the power, but because you're going to be lit up like a Christmas tree, Anybody who wants to be a data thief, for example, will be able to see exactly where you are. And if you're only in a sidewinder, then you could be very much a sitting target. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other point as well, which they don't go into that much detail about. And how is that data going to be stolen? I mean, is it just going to float away with the rest of your cargo if they blow up your ship? Or you know, is it something you actually have to actively hand over? Or is it another sort of mini game that we can see further down the line where you actually have to hack somebody's ship? Don't mention many games Ian Norman's going to blow up. 
Well, didn't they actually say that these data packets, if you like, will be like uh, the way that the bounties are stored or the missions are stored? And effectively, you'll see underneath your missions thing, you've got a, a voucher or, or some kind of notification saying that you've got that data. Then you take it back to the ship, uh, back to the core worlds. Exactly. But I mean, that doesn't explain how that data then gets stolen by someone. Well, the, it's what happens really in that case is that the other person destroys the other ship, that data's destroyed, and then they do their scanning. That's one way to stop someone else coming back with the data. I guess, especially if they're going to be, when they explode, they could be hundreds of light years off when they come back from their magical teleportation thing. Because who knows where they're going to actually <laughs> they're, they're, end up. They're what exactly? They're, they're magical they're magic, teleportation thing. I think well, it's going to have thing. to be a magical teleportation thing because you know, you're going to end up after paying your insurance, you're somehow back in God knows where, but it's going to be hundreds of light years off if you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's a good point, it is. So magical teleportation. Okay, no, absolutely. We'll go with magical teleportation thing. That's absolutely fine. If it is an escape pod, my God, imagine the hyperdrive and those things to get back to a station instantly. <laughs> yeah, forget frameshift drive. These things are much more advanced than that. Okay, well, let's leave the point of exploration there. We'll see that develop over the next few releases, I'm sure. Other thing that was covered in the newsletter is that down in the headquarters, down in the studios, they've seen for the first time Elite Dangerous running in 4K resolution at 60 frames per second it's an amazing experience the clarity and level of details and often make it even more like sort of being there now the good news for those people that can afford it is that sli uh, which stands for scalable link interface is coming and is going to be available in beta 2 so for those of you that wallets can handle it you'll be able to experience a full 4k gaming as long as you've got the appropriate equipment now I've just upgraded my graphics card. Uh, I bought a second-hand one off eBay just so I could play the current resolution at 60 frames per second. So God knows what sort of system you're going to need to play it at 4K. Obviously, you're going to need a 4K screen. Does anybody have any idea what sort of system you're talking about to be able to run at that sort of resolution and that sort of frame rate? Well, according to David Braben responding to Twitter, it's a top-end, over-the-top machine an 8-core with dual Titans. An 8-core with dual Titans. No idea how much RAM's going to be in those. Just says top-end, over-the-top machine. Jeez. Yes, the, the G2 Titans, uh, the NVIDIA GTX Titans, are around about $1,500. No, $2,000 for the Titans. The Radeon 295X2 is $1,500. But what they're talking about is the new sort of range of graphics cards are going to be dual GPUs. These are going to be obviously like the four core CPUs that we've got and how they're doubling up to eight core and stuff. So you're going to need top kit, which is prohibitive. We're talking about the three or four thousand dollars or two thousand pounds. Uh, and then you've got the screens, and the screens themselves are just around about the same price again. So I think it's maybe a bit rich for most of us. <laughs> so i mean so, what are we thinking maybe two years down the line three years down the line this will be sort of uh, reachable for most of us <laughs> it sounds like it's basically about at the moment sounds like it's a 10k rig there are people building actual real life cockpits for that price <laughs> <laughs> yes. either way i mean maybe it would be possible even then i certainly don't have a 4k screen to run it but it would be quite nice to see some footage that we can download and run ourselves on a 4k screen just to see what the game actually looks like at that sort of resolution 
the next point in the newsletter was the Elite 30th anniversary, which is going to be on September the 20th. It'll be the 30th anniversary of Elite, which obviously was created by David Braben and Ian Bell back in 1984. Crumbs. So Elite Dangerous is the fourth game in the series uh, and the third sequel to the original game from 30 years ago. So what they basically asked is they've asked the Elite community to share their memories and memorabilia and thoughts and experiences, compiling a short 10-second or less video and sending it through to them at Elite30Years, that's Elite30Years at Frontier.co.uk. I think I'll probably throw something in for this. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm I'm working on one at the moment. It's just a short segment. But the first time I, I launched from the Spectrum base station, and completely lost control of my craft. So I think that it uh, implies the, the confusion that you first had when you started. I think it's very hard to keep it under 10 seconds, but actually tell a story. Yeah, no, I agree. It is quite a challenge, but it'll be interesting to see what people come back with. Uh, we should probably just say at this point as well that uh, Lave Radio are planning on doing a number of shows that will tie into the 30th year anniversary. We will have a retro Lave show, which will now, now that we've got more crew members, we'll actually be running that on Twitch TV. We'll actually be doing that live at the same time as recording, which will cover uh, probably Frontier, First Encounters, and also probably the, go back and have a look at the original game from 84 as well. Uh, but we've got some special shows lined up. We're going to have a special Conclave episode as well, where members of the community can come on and talk about their memories of the original Elite game, uh, as well as a main show. So all in all, lots of things planned around the 30th anniversary. It is a big milestone. It, it seems a little bit scary that it was 30 years ago that we are all playing the original game. Okay, and finally for Newsletter 39, the uh, continuing series talking about the Elite Dangerous books. This time it's the focus of the Elite Tales from the Frontier, which is just as well, seeing as we've got Chris Jarvis, one of the writers of the uh, Tales from the Frontier, on the show. Uh, Chris, take us through this. It's the section in the newsletter that talks about the various Elite Dangerous books, and this time it is, is Tales from the Frontier. So if anybody doesn't know, Tales from the Frontier is a compilation of 15 short stories set in the Elite Dangerous universe. They aren't all short. They cover a huge variety of different topics. Um, Some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. I have to say, because I'm in it, but it it is a really good book. And I just want to stress that a bit more because obviously, you know, it's a kind of known thing that short story anthologies perhaps don't do as well as novels. And I think it would be a real shame, actually, if people in sort of getting the different elite books missed out on the anthology, because there are some really lovely ideas in this book. And I'm not, you know, necessarily talking about my one here. I mean, there's 14 other stories in this that I haven't written. And there are some genuinely lovely ideas in there. I'm a huge fan of short stories, and I think they allow you to discuss ideas and concepts which maybe don't always find a very appropriate home in novels. I think because you can write a short story around a very specific concept uh, and a short story allows you to explore that in a way that perhaps in a long novel you would look at a particular concept idea and say, how does this serve the main story? I thoroughly recommend it. Um, I don't know what else to say, really. Well, I was going to ask you, mate, seeing as you're here, it may be remiss of us not to ask you to just give a quick overview of Children of Zeus. Okay, so (laughs) spoiler-free. Yes, please. (laughs) It is essentially about a guy who is in the kind of explorer role. He is flying around systems on the furthest edges of the frontier, trying to chart systems for valuable resources 
before anybody else can. It's a slightly uneasy thing because he's been hired to do this by a corporation. And actually, all he really wants to do is fly around and look at pretty rocks and things. But unfortunately, he's kind of aware that anywhere that he scans, the corporation is going to turn up with a fleet of ships and uh, industrialise the place. So he's, you know, he's out exploring the furthest fringes of the universe. um, And he comes across something which he doesn't expect to find, which terrifies him and um, raises lots of questions about what's out there. That's as spoiler-free as I can keep it, really. No, that's absolutely brilliant, mate. That's perfect. (laughs) Colin? Well, yeah, the one thing I really liked about this is that the stories are just about the right length to have a a read on the train. You normally go through one a day or something like that. And I was really impressed by the different depth of each of the different stories. there's, There's not one where you think, oh, that one's already been done earlier in the anthology. It, is, it really is a good spread of ideas. Yeah, and it sort of naturally worked out quite well working on it. I mean, I was quite late to the anthology, but people were obviously, you know, discussing their story ideas in a sort of general sense. I mean, writers are quite protective over their story ideas, but in a sense, people were sort of keeping an eye out on what everyone else was planning to do. Elite is such a huge universe, and everyone's interested in slightly different aspects of it. So it does end up being, you know, a really lovely collection of, of, of different ideas. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's going to do it for Newsletter 39. Uh, one last topic for the development news, and that is, it's caught us all a little bit by surprise because we haven't seen one for such a long time. Uh, there's actually a new DDF topic, and for those of you that can't remember what DDF is, it's the Design Decision Forum where we bring new ideas from the design team to, to throw about amongst the backers and see if there's anything to, to shake loose. So, Chris, you've been reading on this. Why don't you take us through it? Okay, so the DDF proposal is around something which we discussed, I think, quite early on in the whole process of Elite Dangerous. I think because it is a such a huge part of what we expect from a modern game experience now is this idea of a tutorial to ease you in. And we talked about it really because the original Elite very much threw you into the kind of deep end. Essentially, you're, you're just thrown into the game and you have to figure out how to trade and how to dock and all these sorts of things. So Sandro uh, Samarco has posted up a topic about some different approaches to maybe giving people the chance to have a bit of a tutorial to help them get to grips with Elite Dangerous. There are essentially three options, as I understand it, uh, although possibly four. It depends how you look at it. One of the ideas is to have practice missions. Now, this is, for anyone who's played the Alpha or the Beta, The practice missions will essentially be very similar to the single-player alpha build that we saw. So you'll have particular scenarios that are designed to teach you certain things, and you can go through those, and it will gradually build up your skills. The other one that's interesting is there's a thing called the pre-flight check. So when you first come into the game, you'll be docked at a space station. And as I understand it, the concept of the pre-flight check is the computer on board the ship will put you through a series of tests to check that you understand the control interface. So if you don't know how to throttle up and throttle down and steer and, you know, put your landing gear up and down, basically you won't get launch clearance. That's essentially what I understand. There's a mode where... I'm not not totally clear on what they mean by it because the description they've given is regardless of your chosen start system, you will start at an outpost rather than a station with interior docking because they're saying that the the, the outposts are easier to dock with and to leave, I guess because there's no rotation or any of that stuff. And basically, until you have successfully left that station, made a hyperspace jump and landed somewhere else, 
you will just keep getting dumped back to that outpost until you've figured it out which is an interesting approach to it and then the fourth option well let's say it's not really a fourth option but it is basically to have a thing which is more like modern games where as you're playing the game for the first sort of little while each time you access a new feature it'll kind of pop up a little explanation of that feature and how it works i mean four very different approaches there i think to bringing players up to speed i'm not sure honestly i'm not even sure what i think about it my main feeling is as long as whatever all these options are they're skippable if you already know what you're doing then that's fine by me <laughs> i quite like optional tutorials that you can dip back into if you realize your uh, knowledge is a bit lacking i mean i do prefer the practice mission approach but like chris was saying i, I don't want it to be compulsory they were saying you could dangle a, a carrot in front saying that you've passed your test so you get a, a decal or something like that. I mean, I do know from <laughs> previous space sims that if you make the tutorials too long, depending on how complex the game is, then basically you lose half the audience when you're, they're halfway through learning how to dock. But I do think that the, the mission, if you have an uh, instructor pilot taking you through it and then finally you pass a test and then, hey, presto, you can get rid of your L plates, that would be probably the way to go. But, of course, for us advanced pilots, we can just go, no, we know that. We don't need to bother with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But in terms of the universe and the immersion into the universe, I quite like the idea of getting your license before you leave the station on your own for the first time. If you just wanted to click the button that says, you know, <laughs> complete training, grab license and go, then fine. But for everybody else, getting taken through a set number of practice missions, I think is yeah, it's a good option. Uh, ben? I love the idea of us having some kind of introductory storyline missions. So, you know, if I'm in a independent trader or I'm in a, the Explorer, I've somehow ended up at day zero in a long-range Cobra well, let me be flying along with Uncle Bob or something like that. And he's training me up and showing me stuff. And then, you know, we maybe get into a fight and that's the end of the training mission. But that's how I end up basically in his ship, which I'm having to try and get back to civilization or something. I've realized having sort of had a bit of time with everybody talking about it and having had a chance to think about it. Do you know, I don't like it. I've realized I don't like it because beyond the kind of really patronizing stuff around this is up and down on your controller and this is forward and back on your throttle, there's really nothing that this game can teach you about how to play it that you wouldn't have more fun figuring out for yourself. The, the analogy I was thinking of, did everyone see Pacific Rim? Did you see Pacific Rim? Yeah, I very deliberately avoided it. It was an enjoyable film. It. Yeah, um, a good film. The thing I didn't enjoy about it was in the first two minutes, there is a voiceover that explains everything interesting about the film. And then what you do is sit through two hours of fights. Now, if instead of having that voiceover at the beginning, I'd been allowed to work out all that stuff that I'd been told, then that would have been really fun, you know, for the rest of the film to, to understand all these unusual things that are happening. And there is a tendency for creators who underestimate the intelligence of their audience that you need to kind of explain everything up front. And I actually think, you know, Elite Dangerous is more fun if you kind of figure everything out as you go. I mean, all the nuances of how to make money as a trader, how to do missions, how to understand, you know, the combat thing. Part of the game surely is working out how to be good at those things rather than 
just having everything explained to you up front and then just basically going through the motions the way you've been told to do it. I think if if we're talking about elite as a journey of exploration and a journey of discovery, but surely that is as much of an internal journey as it is an external journey. Yeah, and I would agree with that if it was in 1984. And yeah, that's the sort of level of expectation that uh, people had around computer games. You know, they had a thick manual that they could either read or they could just jump into it. Yeah, I'm not sure if what you're talking about there, Chris, is actually going to work in the modern day. I think. When was the last time you played a tutorial in a game that actually explained something you didn't already know? I mean, beyond familiarizing you with that game's specific control method. When was the last time in a game you were introduced to a concept that you didn't already understand? But surely that's what they're talking about here. You know, it's basically just the nuts and bolts of landing, taking off, getting through the spaceport, using your weapons and where everything is, and you know, looking to the left to find that particular interface, looking to the right to find that particular interface. If you didn't give people some sort of tutorial for that, I think you just might lose people. And then, you know, I don't think people have got the patience these days to sit down and and work it all out for themselves. Okay, to give you another analogy, did you ever play a game called Abe's Odyssey on the PlayStation? (laughs) Yes, I did. Okay, now there was a standard thing in PlayStation manuals. There would be a picture of the PlayStation controller with a thing saying, this is the triangle button, this is the square button, this is the circle (laughs) button. Now, what they did in the Abe's Odyssey manual was they said... We haven't included a picture. It said something like, we haven't included a picture of the controller at this point. In all honesty, if you don't understand the controller, this game is going to go way over your head. (laughs) That was in the manual, do you know what I mean? And I kind of think that, you know, we're already seeing the forums full of people who are posting basically that they don't like the game, they don't understand the game. They've come into it 12 months down the line and they're saying, I think the design should be changed in favour of this. And I think we've already said that this isn't a game for people that like to play Call of Duty, and by which I mean people who like to be led from point A to point B in a very linear fashion, being given basically a guided tour of explosions, Elite Dangerous is not that kind of game. If it was, Frontier Developments wouldn't have funded it themselves through Kickstarter so that they could make a game that was completely unlike everything else out there. But what we're talking about here is not something that will lead people through by the nose. We're just talking about getting the concept over to them because you'd be surprised. I mean, I've seen so many Twitch streams or I'm constantly on massively trying to explain to people that you've got to do this in order to get things to work. And if you had a kind of basic tutorial which took people through that, you wouldn't have the... the well, you probably still would have all the whinging, but you, you probably wouldn't have a lot of the misunderstanding that's been going on. No, totally. And I mean, you know, there are valid points around things like the subsystem menus. You know, you have to look left and right to see them. Yeah. You know, there are odd things like that. But I don't know. I just it's it's got to be optional because for people who do like to figure things out or people who, who do kind of understand what's going on, the first half an hour to an hour of game can be really painful to get through it and i mean to be fair i mean i say when was the last time you were introduced to a concept that was new one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that elite or the current generation of space flying games is kind of a new thing you know the current generation of players haven't necessarily played them assassin's creed does it well because if you jump into some of the later assassin's creed games rather than giving you a tutorial like up front when you've probably played the last four games they have a thing where every time you're 
in a certain new scenario, it says, if you push this button now, you can have a tutorial about this feature. And it kind of pulls you out of the game and you can go and have a bit of a practice or whatever it is it's talking about. And then you're kind of dropped back into the game. So I think that's quite an elegant way of giving people tutorials on advanced features without making them sit through a driving test. Yeah, exactly. Uh, although for a game like Elite, where it's all about immersion, it's all about realism, it's all about sort of taking you into that universe. I think you know something that actively pulls you out like that would really sort of break the fourth wall. You know, it could be very easily done, like it was in Wing Commander. You could have a flight simulator at a space station where you can just go through a tutorial, but you know, play through a simulator. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Ben, in this DDF topic, he's actually talking about a simulator for talking about for going in and trying things out. I did think that's interesting that having the simulator is very directly contradicting something that Michael said in LaveCon 2013, because I asked him about a simulator for tutorials, and he's like, no, we don't want people in simulators. <laughs> I'm yeah, but I mean, see it come in. Yeah, for those of us that played the original Wing Commander games, there's a certain amount of love for the little sort of the arcade simulator in the corner. But yeah, I think it would work in a way that wouldn't break the immersion of the game. Grant? I really dislike the um, buddy pilot introduction rubbish. And if you think about it, anything like that in game, you're going to see all these new pilots going around Lave Station with about you know thousand little buddies, <laughs> computer generated <laughs> people showing them now this pitch this way. And just remember, we've done this in retro. How annoying! It is when you're sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, I know what the target is. Just tell me to shoot the target. No, no, don't stop me from turning my ship. Let me turn my ship. I'll shoot the target. Let's get on with this. What they should do is forget that kind of in-game nonsense. Forget the simulators. It is such an easy thing to resolve. The docking tutorial video that they made is all the kind of interface you need have in the cockpit the ability to go to a reference manual that brings those videos and plays them in game so you can yeah. be sitting there it's great because it's a, an ideal situation for pirates to watch for the guy that doesn't know how to hyperspace jump sitting there <laughs> watching the video stationary <laughs> but you know make it available out of the game in the game menu too so that you can watch these videos and then jump in and try it and that I think is the best way to do it. So you can imagine that, a little sort of um, heads-up display with the video playing in the middle of your screen and you can then fly around and mimic it and copy it and having a series of them. So, for example, when you're in your Sidewinder, you've got a Sidewinder-related video. And the nice thing about it is if you have any tutorials that say, now press your C key and you're going, I've got the Oculus on, I'm not using a keyboard. When I press the C key, nothing happens. So it gets inaccurate. So all you would really need to do is activate this system with whatever control you've set for it. And users will have to make that intelligent leap of what key have I set up for that? <laughs> Yeah, okay, fine. Well, I tell you what, guys, we could spend all night talking about this again. It's quite nice to have a DDF topic to actually get our teeth stuck into. We'll come back probably in the next episode or maybe in a couple of episodes time and let you know what the, the fallout is from that particular topic. Uh, it looks like it's actually going to be quite an interesting one. So we'll leave that there for the time being. And when we come back, we'll go straight into our discussion topic, which is the timeframes for beta and the Elite 30th anniversary. Cheers. Welcome to this Endomatic 3000. 
Would you like Reward Raider Aid? Would you like Iso Pop 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 Pop? Would you like Iso Poop 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 Poop? Ah, uh, this. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. Uh, what now? to use force against this unit. Lethal force. Authorized. No, wait, just Weapons online. No, wait! Would you like reward? Thank you for your cooperation. Have a nice day. Okay, so for the discussion topic for this episode, we're talking about the hopeful, hopeful, imminent release of beta 2 what we can expect to see in beta 2 and where that leads us for the rest of the development schedule and when we might see this game actually going into gamma and final release um so starting us off let's have a look at some of the stuff that we have had confirmed for the beta 2 release and certainly new missions the new missions we've got escort missions assassination missions uh, tail and report missions group missions policing duties and of course the going in all guns blazing mercenary assignments. We also heard that there is potential to have some espionage missions for either the military or the corporations which are going to rely heavily on stealth and heat management. No confirmation as to whether or not the espionage missions are going to be released in beta 2 like the rest. Guys, what do you reckon about the the new missions? Obviously so far we've seen courier missions and they've just been pretty basic. What do you think about having assassination missions or escort missions coming into the game? Let's start with Jarvis. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see what kind of flavour they can get into the missions. And I know obviously we're still in beta and the game is still very much in development, but it it would be nice if they're not just slightly different flavours of kill X number of a certain type of ship, which is obviously the danger. I mean, like the assassination mission could essentially just be kill one of a type of ship as opposed Hmm. to we need you to hunt some pirates, which is shoot four of a kind of ship. So I think, I, I'm not, I don't really want to judge it until I've seen what comes out, but I think they're obviously testing different things and, and adding bits in a bit at a time. But I mean, I've been underwhelmed a little bit by the missions. I think really because what the missions represent is a linear version of what you're already doing in gameplay already. So like the trading missions is about someone saying, well, I need this particular kind of trading good. And then the other things are destroy this many ships. Well, I mean, kind of shooting ships and trading stuff is kind of what the meat and potatoes of what you're doing all the time already anyway. So to have that wrapped up in a mission structure doesn't really add anything for me personally. So I think what I'd like to see is I'd like to see missions start to introduce types of gameplay that don't come out of the emergent universe. Okay, well, I mean, this isn't going to cheer you up much then. If you look at the newsletter 38, the, the screenshot they've actually got here for one of the new missions is uh, hunter-killer mission pirate vessels. Guns for hire required. And the description says, we have a kill order on pirate ships. Your kill quota will be three. Hunt them down and wipe them out, Commander. You'll be paid well for your efforts. Return here once the job is done to collect your payment. So basically what you just said you don't want seems to be exactly the format that you've got. Yeah, but isn't that a screenshot from B? to one i just assumed that was illustrative just a screen grab from what's already out there because there are already missions like that in the beta 
Uh, no, I think that's from Beta 2, isn't it, guys? No, to be honest, that sounds very much like some of the missions I've been running already. The difference between what's seen there and what's in existence is they've got a little bit more text explaining the flavour behind the mission. But my point was that for all the other missions that we're hoping to come, you're going to need other bits of the beta in place. For instance, if you're doing assassination missions, you're going to need a way to interdict someone else's ship, which we know is not in beta 1 at the moment. So hopefully, because these missions are all slated to come, it kind of gives a hint that, you know, you're doing escort missions. That means you'll be able to group with other people and link the frame shift like we've been wanting to for, for quite a while. I mean, I quite like, I mean, from, from that description you gave, I quite like the sound of the tail and report missions, because that doesn't sound like something that you would do day to day, you know, having to sort of follow a ship and presumably stay out of being detected by sensors. That, that kind of appeals to me. Uh, and policing duties kind of reminds me of the early original Wing Commander missions, where you're given a kind of patrol route that you need to sort of fly between points and look out for trouble. Whether that patrol will create any gameplay other than getting involved in a gunfight with a bunch of ships kind of remains to be seen. Ben? I think with all of this, the gameplay is what we're doing, but it's all wrapped up in a storyline. So, okay, sure, whatever it boils down to is you're killing three pirates, but why are you killing those pirates? What's the benefit to you? What's the benefit to the system you're in? Yeah, completely. And I think that maybe leads us on to the next point that's coming into beta 2, which is the, the rankings and ratings, which you know hasn't gone into uh, beta 1 so far. So obviously we could do these missions, but as Chris says, it, it's kind of very similar to what you're already doing. This time, however, you're actually going to be building up your ranking and, and your rating. So there is a an element of progression uh, and role playing involved with these missions now, which will ultimately open up different mission types as you get beyond certain levels. Just to pick up on one of the missions there that I cannot stand in every single space in game, I, these are the missions that I just hate, and that's the escort missions, because they all depend on the level of AI involved in the game, and sometimes you can be having a, a storming mission, you can be having a great time destroying all the uh, the bad guys, and yet the AI ship that you're trying to defend goes off and does something stupid, and that's the end of your mission, and I've always hated those kind of missions in Space Sim, so I'm hoping that you know you don't have to do a certain number of escort missions before you get bumped up a rank. Grant? So I'm curious then that you decided to become a parent, because I have seen parenthood described <laughs> as the world's longest escort mission. Yeah, and there's certain things about parenthood which remind me very much of that, but the good side outweigh it. I was just thinking the kind of missions that could be interesting are an incoming attack on the station that you're in, and all pilots inside are encouraged to get their arses outside and go into a kind of like a almost like Left 4 Dead 2 survival mode where you've got to fend off enough of the incoming enemy to protect the station, and, and that's, a, that's like, that'd be good fun. Yeah, absolutely, although you've got to question what type of ship you're going to be facing outside. That's going to be big enough to cause a problem to a Coriolis. Yeah, aren't those things covered by events? Or they say, right, at this point here we're going to have, I don't know, a Coriolis attacked by a space dredger, and you've got to help defend or attack. It's not generated by the stuff you can get off the bulletin board. That's fair enough, and you do go to your bulletin board and you go, well, I'll go and fight on behalf of this and I'll take this mission so I can get some tickets and get paid when I come back. But something more imminent like that, you know, you're docked, the alarms go off in the space station, you know, you go to the bulletin board where there's a Tannoy announcement, all pilot, get your horses out there and save us. And it could just be simply uh, an incoming 
raiding party from uh, an Imperial force arriving at a Federation station. You've got to go out there and just encourage them actively to turn away. Something, you know, that's emergent gameplay, I suppose, and could be covered by an event, but it'd be really great fun if you happen to be docking, just trading your goods in your little sidewinder, <laughs> selling your three <laughs> well, dumpets actually, of it, fish. Actually, it leads on quite nicely to the thing that we know is going to be in the uh, beta to release, and that's the Galnet feed is going to be incorporated in gameplay. So obviously, if you have a look at the Galnet feed, the information that's come through there can actually trigger certain local events. So quite similar, actually, Grant, to what you've just been talking about there. Although I don't think it would be the stations being attacked, but it could be that you know the Imperial ambassador is being attacked or something like that, which will then trigger a mission to go and you know protect his convoy or try and blow it up, which... Something's going to happen to the Galnet feed because at the moment, obviously, seeing it in newsletters, I have to say it it suffers greatly from the old TLDNR, which is too long, did not read. I never look at it these days. I look at probably the first paragraph and then just move on. So it'll be interesting to see how they're planning to implement the Galnet feed in the game in such a way that you know pilots are going to actually be interested in in taking the data. I mean, is this Galnet feed, is it going to be just one feed or will it be like the old thing in First Encounters where you've got different kinds of feeds or journals which showed a certain point of view? Well, certainly in the DDF there was talk about you know, news feed and there'd be certain different channels depending on your faction and where you are in space and you know what system and stuff you're in as to what feeds you can actually pick up. So, yeah, we don't know at the moment, but I would imagine it's going to be split. Ben? I think the other thing that we've got to be careful of, and okay, I may be at the wrong end of the scale here, but I was doing a pirate mission the other day, and I think I got something like 3,000 credits to kill pirates, but doing that, tracking them down and things like that, I probably incurred about 10,000 credits of damage. So (laughs) I'm just finding that a lot of the missions aren't scaling very well. Okay, so there's a certain element in terms of balance that hopefully in, in beta 2 they'll have addressed. It needs to be ultimately worth your while, and it yeah. sounds very much that either you are very, very bad at shooting pirates or, or the balance in that one isn't particularly, uh, isn't particularly correct. I think it's just that the Anaconda is an expensive ship to maintain. It's probably not the right ship to be taking on pirates in. You, know, you maybe want something a little bit cheaper and a little bit more mobile like a Viper. But it's still a perfectly reasonable ship, and just the way things worked out, that I ended up taking some damage. But what you're saying is basically it would be quite nice if there were missions that were suitable for an anaconda, that paid better, but you needed to be in an anaconda to actually do them. Yeah, something that basically scales up, which I'm sure we'll Mm. get with the increased reputation and things like that as well. Okay, obviously we've already mentioned it on the cast about uh, Acela Starports. That's been suggested that that's going to make it into Beta 2. Outposts, have we heard if Outposts are going to be in Beta 2? I don't know, but as we've commented, that screenshot of the outpost does look like it's taken from in-game, so I don't know, maybe that means they're close to it working? Well, fingers crossed. Well, I was going to say that they might be trying to tie that in with the explorer mechanic, because you might have on your, your system, or rather on your map, you know that there's a Coriolis over here, but if you go exploring some of the other planets, you might find some of these little outposts which aren't on the map. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly one of the things that they always said was going to be in the game was, you know, there were going to be outposts and there were going to be things like pirate dens that actively need to either acquire the information or you'd need to scan it down within the system and have the right rating to be able to go and actually dock with those particular structures. So, 
if that's in beta 2 i'll be uh, i'll be amazed thrilled but amazed finally the last thing that we do know is confirmed for beta 2 is again the scalable link interface for those people with lots of money to be able to play in in super high definition sli support is being put into it so where do you reckon this leaves us, guys? Obviously, we're hoping that Beta 2 is going to be released, to quote Michael Brooks, soon. But we're into you know, into the second week of September now. Two more weeks left, three more weeks left of this month. How many beta releases do you reckon we've got left before we see the ultimate sort of gamma release going out to the Kickstarter backers? That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, is this podcast going to beat Beta 2 out? <laughs> you think it's going to be that soon, do you? Uh, I, I just know our run of luck. <laughs> Obviously, beta two we're expecting maybe hopefully uh, soon. So maybe in the you know, week three of September, after this podcast has come out, if it's out, if you're listening to this and beta two has been out for the last week, well, that just goes to show that we need to get these things out faster. But as it currently stands, we're still waiting for beta two to be released. But where's that leave us, guys? Obviously, David Braben's talking about getting the retail version or at least releasing the game at the tail end of this year. That doesn't leave us much time for many more beta releases, stroke the gamma releases, before the actual window in which David thinks that the game's going to be ready for retail release. So what do you reckon, Colin? Well, I reckon we've got one more beta release and then it'll be gamma. Mostly because they've already they've got a kind of get out clause with Gamma. They sort of said, well, we'll get to this point, we'll call it Gamma, and then we'll be keeping on adding in features. But for the big feature pushes, you'll be looking at Beta 2, then another big feature push for Gamma, and then I reckon then at that point it will be uh, little increments to refine or add little bits in that they didn't manage to put in for Gamma. They, they haven't said it's going to be properly released. It's sort of this Gamma state seems to be going yeah. on forever. Well, they haven't put sort of a tail end for Gamma. They haven't suggested when the actual retail release, that release that we're talking about at the end of the year, we don't know if that's Gamma or if that's actually sort of a boxed release or a download release available, you know. So it'll be interesting to see what their what their plan is for that. But you don't think there's going to be a Beta 3? No, I don't think there's going to be a Beta 3. I think it'll go straight to Gamma. In fact, to tell you the truth, you only really know if you've got the proper release when they actually start saying, and here's the Planetary Landings extension pack. <laughs> yeah, it, it, puts, it puts me in mind of um, Prison Architect, which is a game that is still in kind of pre-alpha, but has been in Steam sales about 10 times. And interesting, we should probably point out that the Chief of Operations, Mr. John Stabler, has actually written quite a nice uh, blog article on the topic of whether or not paying to get early access to a game or paying to support a game is actually worthwhile or not. And if you go to... Who's review or something, isn't it? Uh, fund or fraud, charging customers to test a game, where he goes into detail about the, the, the changing culture of Kickstarter and, and whether or not it's actually right to get people to, to basically pay for playtesting people's games and the like. So I do suggest you go and check that out. It's quite an interesting article. And if you look back, you'll also see that Alan Stroud's also written a blog on that as well. Okay, so interesting. So you reckon there's going to be no beta 3, it's going to go straight into Gamma. Well, what else are we waiting on? We've seen the ratings and reviews. Obviously, the rest of the universe needs to be opened up. We're still a few star systems short of a full pie. But what other things, crucially, do we need to see before we would say this is a you know, a final release? Colin? Yeah, well, there are, I think, three major things that we're going to need. We're going to need players being able to interdict other ships so that you've got piracy or even ship-to-ship trade. You're going to need mining, and you're definitely... Uh, 
you know, the third one has just popped straight out of my head. <laughs> ben, help now. <laughs> I was thinking we still need all the ships, and every ship has to be balanced. And so we, we're also, we don't have all the weapons, we don't have any of the upgrade systems. I think one of the developers was saying he'd basically been spending the past couple of weeks writing hundreds of modules, which could be interesting. I read modules basically meaning some kind of outfit for some kind of ship. We still need some way to actually track other people as well. So how do I work out where you're jumping off to or something? That was it. <laughs> that was it. Huzzah, I found that it. was it. It was, it was the tracking <laughs> mechanism. How do you track somebody after they've jumped to hyperspace for a good old assassination or a, or a sneaky follow, follow the leader mission? Proper working communications would be nice. Proper grouping would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, hold on, hold on, oh, hold on. This is not supposed to be a big whinge about the stuff that isn't in the game. So. This is stuff that is needed before it goes to Gamma. I, I have to say, if there's one major thing that's missing, given that it's elite... It's probably a ranking system for your career. Yeah. I think until we've got that, the game is still very much in. I think that'll probably define what makes the game actually the kind of full version, is once they switch on the ranking system, because I get the impression they're not going to do that until they're happy that there's going to be no more database resets. But I mean, obviously, we, we have heard that ranking and ratings are coming in with beta 2 release, so <laughs> we would expect that there's going to be another wipe. So... Obviously, they're going to wipe us back down to obviously our starting ships and stuff, but I take it they're going to reset those rankings as well, which will be quite upsetting for a number of people. But that's what we signed on for, really. We knew there was going to be a wipe when Gamma comes along. I think they've said they're not wiping, or they're going to try and not wipe for Beta 2. I'm sure I read they're going to try, but you know, there's try and do, isn't there? Oh, I thought yeah, Beta 2 was just a continuation. I just thought the next wipe was going to be in Gamma. That's right. That's my impression as well, Colin. And, and I thought the whole thing was do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the other major feature, actually, though, that we're really waiting for is some way to reinforce our cargo base so that we can actually get toxic canisters to slow. <laughs> yes, because Kate's really waiting for that feature to be entered into the game. <laughs> okay, well, let's just leave that topic there for the time being and we'll come back to it in probably the next episode to see if we were ahead of the curve or not but certainly in a couple of episodes time where we see a little bit more sort of concrete information about the release schedule so stay with us and we'll be right back with community corner okay so community corner we'll go straight into some questions that we've got from the community facebook questions let's start off with john hickton who says it'll be interesting to know your thoughts on how trading of information as opposed to commodities may work in practice so could you buy some software upgrades for ship systems in a service economy system and if these were lost on the destruction of your ship it could make it a little bit more interesting in terms of death being more of an issue what do you reckon, guys? I mean, we haven't heard anything about software to increase you know, the functionality of any of your modules, but potentially it could work. But anything that increases your desire to hold on to your ship, I think is possibly something that could be worthwhile. What do you reckon? It all depends whether it's covered by insurance or not, really, isn't it? I mean, is he implying that we've, we've bought an upgrade and you can't get it on the insurance afterwards? Quite possibly. Again, the whole thing about having uh, software upgrades for ship systems is something that we haven't heard anything about in either the DDF topic or anything like that. So it's only going to be sort of speculation. And we we certainly know it's not in the current development pipeline. So it's more really about the trading of in-system information. So in terms of, you know, what we've already talked about in the cast, like exploration, 
how do we think trading on that information is going to work? I think we've already covered this one because if you lose your ship before you can get your trading information or your exploration information back to the core worlds or people that will use it, well, then you've lost it. And, <laughs> you know, that's a big motivation not to lose your ship. Just like having, I don't know, 100 tons of gold go up when you forget to switch on the docking computer properly. Yeah, fair enough. Next question comes in from Dave AD, who says there's a lot of noise on the forum about the public beta 104 seemingly causing a lot of problems. Is this build a step backwards? Uh, thoughts and what do you all feel about the general level of recent communications from Frontier regarding beta 2? Ben, I think you're probably the best person to answer this one. Oh, didn't Frontier, when they released public beta 104, they're saying they're doing networking and grouping testing. So... They're doing that testing, they're evaluating the data we're getting. Yes, it might be less stable, but it's less stable in a cause, and I don't consider that a step backwards, personally. No, I guess anything that makes the final game, which is obviously what we're all ultimately keeping one eye on, anything that makes the final game more stable has got to be a step forward rather than a step backwards. Well, hopefully they're getting good data out of it, certainly crashing enough. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, that's the questions from Facebook. Ben, you had a little bit of information from um, the forums about the new community managers. A little bit of information mainly coming out via Twitter that we're getting two new community managers one guy called Michael Gapper, I think it is, and I think he used to work for Edge. And we're also getting another guy called Edward Lewis, and he's in a band apparently, but that's all I know at the moment of them. Okay, well, welcome to both those two guys, and hopefully they'll see what a fantastic community the elite community are. Speaking about communities, uh, Mr. Jarvis, what can you tell us about the new subforum? Well, there is a new role-playing thread, a sub-forum in the Frontier Forums. Um, so this is, for people who love their immersion, this is a place where you can have in-character text discussions and a bit of online role-playing. And there's also, it's meant to also be a place for discussing the kind of elite dangerous lore. I have to say it's a pretty quiet place at the moment. There are a couple of people there that are very bravely sort of uh, forging ahead with some in-character posts, but these are you know these are the sorts of things that are normally quite popular on, on on other forums, and you know hopefully it'll find an audience as time goes on. Speaking of which, we have also had a tweet from Ancient Scream asking us a question about have we done a cast where we discuss the various in-game factions and their history and stance to enable people to choose. I think that's a big topic. I think that's something we need to look at for a podcast later down the line before the game becomes more of a kind of final release. Maybe we need to do a sort of Empire Federation and Alliance, the big questions podcast. Yeah, no, it sounds like a good idea. I mean, we talked about them way back when, I think certainly within the first 10 podcasts, but that was more of a sort of an overview. There's a lot more information out there now. Certainly with the fiction being released, there's a lot more information that we can gleam and, and, and have a proper sort of discussion about it all. So no, I think it's like a, like a great idea. We'll definitely do that. And finally, for this section, we'll have a quick look at what's been going on on the forums. Grant, you're probably the best person to take us through this. What's been the hot topics on the boards? Well, other than the new DDF, which obviously is quite interesting and has just sort of come in the last couple of days, the most 
commonly raised issues at the moment certainly seem to be very, very hot topics over the ship skins and around about the sort of uh, what is a microtransaction and is $3 for a single skin really a microtransaction or is that more of a significant transaction? Not just that, they're also concerned about the fact that in the Kickstarter there was mention of credits being sold as microtransactions, which is you know, where we've been out there from the development. We know that the Frontier have kind of moved away from that, but they've not ruled it out yet. But it has raised these questions of people who are now coming in are looking to the Kickstarter and they're seeing all this information and making posts based on, I don't want that, I think this is ridiculous, and getting very, very heated, rightly so, because there's this sort of grey area that has occurred as the skins come out, and yet in the Kickstarter it would say that all content will be purchasable in-game. And you're thinking, well, yeah, it's contradictory, but it's because we've moved a lot in those two years, so it'll probably calm down as we get on through the process, but it certainly seems to be that not everybody is happy with the price of the vanity items. Not everybody's happy that you can't get skins in-game at the moment. Obviously, that can change. And other people are concerned that it's portraying this kind of money-grabbing attitude from Frontier, which is not a, a sort of thought that I share. In fact, you know, I've got confidence and I've bought skins not from a point of view as I want to plaster them on my ship, but just to support Frontier to keep the game going. So that certainly seems to have been a much hotter topic than I ever thought it would be because it's a vanity item, so it's not a game-changing device. I thought that's what we asked for. And I think a majority of us have stated vanity items are fine. But as I say, all the new people coming in are bringing in their fresh opinion to it and it is causing a little bit of friction. Uh, that and the usual ganking and PvP, which comes around almost <laughs> almost daily. And yes, of course, there's been some developments with Star Citizen as well that are being hotly discussed. So there's quite a lot going on in the forums. There's the groups forum as well, which is relatively new. And that seems to be growing quite well, which is all about creating the communities for in-game play and... Yeah, it's, it's been an extremely busy forum, but unfortunately a lot of people are really getting quite heated in the whole microtransactions. It's that and definitely the in-game griefing or pirating or testing and whether or not people should be forced to have PvP or whether the in-game functions are making it far too namby-pamby for everybody. So there's a good divide of opinion and some good healthy discussion going on. Great stuff. And Colin, I think you picked up on uh, quite a, a silly thread that you wanted to highlight as well. Oh, yes. This this is actually links back to the your RPG session for the last podcast or so. There was this concept of dice shaming, if you remember. <laughs> yes, well, indeed. people in the private backers forum have started their own boost button shaming thread, normally describing a situation where they press the boost button at the wrong time, leading to some hilarious... And uh, <laughs> unfortunate incidents. Yeah, I think we've all done that from time to time, Ben. I'll fess up at this moment to a lovely little incident that actually happened to me last night when I was playing with these other guys from the TeamSpeak channel. I had Commander Smokey and his Anaconda very close behind me, and I had an NPC in a Cobra sitting horizontally across the docking bay wedged in. 
and I literally couldn't move him when I was trying to go in. And I was starting to get docking bay warnings and stuff like that, so I wound up hitting my boost button to punt him out of the way. But I didn't manage to break in time, and <laughs> I kind of went splat. Much to everybody else's hilarity. Uh, everybody's got a good boost button story. Yeah. <laughs> we love it. Well, that sounds like a, a good a place as any to leave it for this episode. So uh, thank you very much to Chris, to Grant, to Ben and to Colin. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can by sending us an email to info at laveradio.com. On Facebook, it's forward slash laveradio, at laveradio on Twitter. If you want to join the ever-growing Elite Dangerous chat channel on Skype, you can just drop me a contact at fozza101. And if you'd like to join the Lave Radio TeamSpeak channel, the address is laveradio.teamspeak3.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, next question comes from uh, Dave AD. Apologies if that's not the correct pronunciation of your nose. Nose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we'll leave uh, this episode on that uh, that wonderful thought of. Okay, I think well that will that will that. <laughs> what is going on with your mouth? Have another whiskey. Late night. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so I think we'll leave it at that, the end of that, shall we? Oh, God. <clears throat> uh, I think we'll... Uh, I think no. we'll leave it at Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, serious. Okay. <laughs> John! John, where are you? Come on, we need you for the show. <laughs> if only John were here. Oh.